Hey there, it's Sarah Holder, host of Big Take. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss, The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. It's The Big Take from Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, Ukraine's fight to protect its cultural heritage from Russian missiles. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has left thousands dead and devastated cities across the country. Less visible is the widespread destruction of Ukrainian culture and identity. Russia's military has targeted libraries and museums that housed irreplaceable books and documents and works of art. Now, with the help of technology like advanced digital modeling, Ukrainians are working to document what's been destroyed and preserve what can be salvaged for future generations. In a moment, I speak with an architect in Kiev who's doing this. He's creating 3D visual models of bombed Ukrainian cultural sites. But first, Bloomberg Senior International Affairs reporter Mark Champion joins me from London to help us make sense of where the war is heading. Mark, you've traveled around Ukraine several times this year reporting on the war. Russia recently had yet another big setback when Ukraine's military took back the city of Kherson in the south. And in the months before that, Russia had to resort to increasing its long-range missile attacks because its troops weren't gaining ground. So clearly the war isn't going well for Putin. How should we think about Russia's strategy in Ukraine right now? Really, they seem to have a dual purpose here. One, and probably the main one, is to try and persuade the West in particular that this has to stop and to negotiate some sort of ceasefire and stop the war, which the Russians essentially are losing, slowly but losing. A second goal is really to punish and to make it clear to the Ukrainians that unless they come to some kind of agreement with the Russians, the punishment will be severe and Russia has the capacity to just continue doing that. And yet it doesn't seem like either of those things is going to happen. The West seems more resolved than ever to help Ukraine. And certainly the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian army and the government don't show any signs of backing down. I think that's absolutely right. And really the story of this war is a, a series of massive miscalculations by the Russians, by Putin himself. Ukraine's forces are continuing a rapid advance in the Kharkiv region, exploiting an extraordinary collapse of Russian defenses. The Kremlin now plans to hold referendums in Ukrainian territories occupied by its troops. President Vladimir Putin announced a partial mobilization and pledged to annex the territories his forces have already occupied in Ukraine. You've traveled around Ukraine. What do you see when you speak to people? What do they tell you? You know, you have to generalize, but I would say that it's pretty consistent that there is, number one, just anger. 
an absolute fury at what uh, Russia is inflicting on Ukraine. And you have to remember that uh, this was not an anti-Russian country before 2014. It became increasingly so after 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and began a, an insurgency in the eastern Donbass region. Violence in Ukraine shifting to Crimea. Gunmen took over parliament and other government buildings overnight. They raised the Russian flag. It's estimated there are about 120 gunmen. Russia has a naval base in the region. Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, supporting a request from Crimea to join the country. But since this war, it is very difficult to find, even among Russian speakers in towns like, you know, Odessa, Mykolaiv, and so on, which are towns that have you know, long historical ties and familial ties uh, with Russia. It's hard to find people with anything good to say about Russia now. The second thing to say would be that something that has changed in the last few months and since the campaign when the Ukrainians had this very successful counteroffensive up in the Kharkiv region. And since then, there's a belief that actually the Ukrainians can and will win. A belief among the people. Yes, absolutely. Among the people, among the military, in the government, there is a very, very profound belief that they will win. And they also feel that, you know, they do have the support of the West, which has all these modern weapons. President Biden says the U.S. will give Ukraine as much as $600 million in additional weapons and ammunition. The HIMARS, these uh, long-range pieces of artillery that have allowed the Ukrainians to strike at logistics supply lines far behind the front lines of, of the Russians, these have proved incredibly strategically important, but also psychologically, because they've given Ukrainians belief that even if they don't have a tenth of the artillery pieces that the Russians have, what they have, because it's modern, because it's Western and so on, will enable them to do what they need to do and to prevail. And this is very important because so long as you, they believe that they can win, the incentive to sit down and negotiate a peace with Russians still occupying about 20% of the country is close to zero. Is that belief well-founded? Will Russia eventually back down if they're not able to gain more ground? Does that seem realistic? Yes, uh, there are two separate questions here. One is whether the Ukrainians can continue to push the Russians back on the battlefield in a conventional war that we're now engaged in. And the answer to that is probably yes. It'll be slow, difficult, but probably yes. The second question is whether the Russians will back down. And we have to remember that they are a massive nuclear power and that they have a lot of other kinds of resources and that this can get very ugly. This is one of the reasons why it feels like a more dangerous period in the war. And that, I suppose, has a lot to do with Vladimir Putin himself and how much he personally has invested his own credibility, the future and credibility of Russia in this invasion. The stakes for him are enormous. He began this war in order to just consolidate his legacy. And he's talked about it specifically, openly, in terms of Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and the gathering, the regathering of Russian lands. Very important for him to talk about the regathering. So the implication is that we're just taking back what's ours. Setting it out in those kind of very kind of grand terms, historical terms, this is my place in history. And then to be defeated and to be pushed back to have lost tens of thousands of your own soldiers, to have destroyed the relationship with, you know, the most important neighbor that Russia has, you know, in terms of it, the former Soviet Union, Ukraine. 
these would be extraordinary defeats for him. Politically, it could be very difficult for him to survive it. You lived and worked in Moscow for years. Do you have a sense of how much support Putin has from the Russian people? He's very good at making people fear him, but do they believe in this cause? He has been very popular. I don't feel like I really have my finger on the pulse of Russian thought today. But what I would say is that even when I lived there in the 90s, when the sort of tide of opinion was very pro-Western, I could count on less than one hand the number of Russians I knew who thought that Ukraine was a country. So this runs deep. The idea that Ukraine is not a real country, it's been taught in history classes and so on for Russians in over many, many decades. And that kind of created an open door for Putin to push at for many people. They really have responded quite well after all the humiliation of the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, the poverty and so on, to the idea that not only did they reestablish the oil industry, reestablish the economy, start doing better, but also they're becoming, you know, reestablishing themselves as a great power. And, and Russians have a very strong idea of the state and of the importance of the state and of the importance of the state as a great power. If he'd got this right, if he had succeeded, he would have made his place in Russian history. And it would have been extremely popular, just as the annexation of Crimea was incredibly popular back in uh, 2014. Mark, later in this episode, we're going to be talking about how Russia's bombing of cultural sites has done great damage to centuries worth of Ukrainian history and artwork and literature. In the beginning of the war, it seemed like the goal of Russia was to conquer Ukraine, to take it over as they tried to do in 2014 to sort of finish that job. Is it fair now to say that in part there is also a goal to sort of destroy Ukraine as a country, as a people, as a culture? I think that is probably right. I mean, we can only really speculate as to what the motives are, but that's what it looks like. It looks punitive, and it looks like the message that's being sent is that we may not be able to win, but you cannot. Even if Russia is not able to conquer Ukraine and to control it, it can destroy Ukraine as and prevent it becoming the Ukrainian nation that it's, you know, Russia has encouraged it to become. And they can destroy that identity. They can try and destroy its culture. They can try and destroy the cities, make them unlivable, make the economy unworkable. Basically, say to the Ukrainians, you know, even if we can't conquer you, you're going to have to come to some kind of arrangement with us because we will simply grind you into the ground. And there will be no nice future for Ukraine as a prosperous European Union state. That, I think, is the message that the Russians are, are sending. But as I say, that's uh, largely inference. Given all of this, what do you see when you look ahead six months, a year from now? Which direction is this war likely to take, if you're able to tell at all? None of us know, of course, the only thing I can say is that, you know, my best analysis in this very moment would be that we will still be at war in six months' time. It will be extremely nasty, will continue to be extremely nasty. The Russians will not give up. The Ukrainians will not give up. The huge, huge variable there is the question of some kind of mass destruction event, some event that changes the game and forces some alteration of path. It's very unpredictable as to exactly what will happen at what moment and you know where that final moment of near collision comes or collision. 
Mark Champion, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. After the break, how one Ukrainian architect is using technology to digitally recreate destroyed buildings. Hey there, it's Sarah Holder, host of Big Take. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss, The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. After Russia targeted cultural sites across Ukraine, people there began documenting the destruction. In part, it was so they could save what they could, but also as evidence of what Russia had done. One of the people doing this is Sergei Ravenko. He's an architect who specializes in building 3D virtual models. He spoke to me recently from his office in Kyiv, Ukraine's capital. Sergey, before we talk about your project to protect and catalog the destruction of Ukraine heritage sites, I just wanted to ask you, what is life like now in Kyiv? Our own interview here this morning was delayed because there was a power outage. What is daily life like in Ukraine's capital right now? It's quite crazy right now. It's a bit disturbing with electricity cuts and all blackouts. It is not stable right now. You never know when the electricity will cut or when it goes up. And so you have traveled around the country visiting cities and towns where Russian bombs and missiles have destroyed buildings, museums, and schools, other places. And you have seen this destruction around the country. Since the war, I was in the Kiev Oblast, all the Kiev Oblast. I have traveled all the places that the Russian forces were staying and trying to capture and occupy these places. Kharkiv area, Chernihivo area, and the Kiev area as well. I want to ask you about one site in particular where you came and documented destruction, and that's in the city of Ivan Kiev, about 70 kilometers north of Kiev. That's about 43 miles. And in that town, there was a museum of local lore. Can you describe what that place was and what happened to it? In Ivankiv, they have the local lore museum, which have also the picture of famous Ukrainian painter Maria Primachenko. She have the very unique style and very impressive pictures. This museum was really burned out and damaged. So we also managed to have the video recorded the exact moment of the missile hitting the building and the fire starts. The Russian army started to shell the town and two shells hit the museum of local lore and just burned it down. Yeah, you're right. So as we come to, to this museum, we heard the stories from the locals and from the director herself about the shells. So no other places were damaged or burned but only the museum, right? And what was destroyed? 
along with the building. The team of the museum, they managed to save all the pictures during the fire. So they just get into the building through the windows and save all the pictures. They actually took them and they hid them, is that right? Yeah, one of the missile hit the roof, goes through the building and start the fire. It was not that obvious that the fire started, but after quite a while, they saw the fire and they decided to just go through the windows and save at least the half on there. But they managed to save all the pictures, yeah. They took the pictures out and then they decided to hide the pictures so that Russian troops could not find them? Yeah, yeah. They really worried about this heritage and the cultural objects. So then you came sometime later, you saw the destruction, and then what did you do to document it? Can you describe what it is that you do? My method is to use a photogrammetry technique to document or to reconstruct the 3D model of exact scene. So we are just using the photo camera. I just go through all the building and repeat all the sites uh, with my camera. And so what you do is you go into the building and you take thousands of photographs, one after the next, to try to document the entire building? You're right. So basically you're taking as much photos as you can, but they're repeating all the shapes of the building. Imagine if you have the square building, right, like a cube. So basically you have to repeat all the sides, all the five sides with the roof, facing it with the camera. As you go through all the sites, you have to at least overlay the next shoot with the before one you take it. At least like 30 or 40% have to be included in the next shot before you do the uh, one. So you're taking all of these overlapping photographs that when you then later put them together in computer software, you're able to reconstruct the image of the building. Yeah, you're totally right. I also using the software to stitch all the photos together and reconstruct it in the 3D model. Once we get the reconstructed 3D model through the, all of the photos, we can manage to view this model and the viewer can see all the destructions and all the details. As though you're actually walking through the building, you can do that on the screen. Yeah, right. Any viewer with the laptop or even smartphone can view it and to see all the scale of the 3D model. When you're making these 3D virtual models of destroyed buildings, do people in the local community help you do this? Is this something that becomes something that people participate in? They helped us with the, all the stories. For example, the video, they showed us the exact moment of the missile hit. It was really shocking. And you really could also use that as the evidence for investigation. What did um, people in the town tell you about the Museum of Local Lore before it was destroyed? It really was important for a community. It was like the local travel spot. And the Ivankiv was the hometown for Maria Premichenko for a long time. This is the artist you described whose uh, paintings were in the museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is really the famous one, not only in, the, in Ukraine, but also internationally. I believe there is some quote that Picasso have about Maria Primachenko. He was impressed by her paintings. 
And yeah, this was like the really important spot for tourists and for our culture. If we lost that, that would be quite a big loss on the cultural side. Do you hope that your models and your documentation of the destruction in Ukraine will one day help hold Russia accountable for what they've done? Definitely. I can't reveal all of the plans or the things that happened, but I'm working on the evidence base to transfer it for a special force or at least a investigation cases to use the treaty muzzle as the evidence. Why as an evidence? Because all the photos that you've taken, you're taken from the different angles, but the exact spot. So basically you can't claim that it's never happened or it's like fabula or you created by yourself. It created through all the thousands of photos that you've taken. So this is like obvious evidence. Sergey Rovenko, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. You heard Sergey say a minute ago that Pablo Picasso praised Maria Primachenko, the Ukrainian artist. I Googled that after we talked, and here is what Picasso said. Quote, I bow down before the artistic miracle of this brilliant Ukrainian. After the break, how Ukrainians are using the kinds of models that Sergei Ravenko was describing just now to preserve what they can for future generations. Hey there, it's Sarah Holder, host of Big Take. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss, The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. I'm joined now by my colleagues Marie Patino and Rachel Doddle. They're data and graphics journalists in New York. Marie and Rachel, you've put together this compelling story for Bloomberg City Lab that combines the models of buildings from Sergei Ravenko and a lot of other sources of data to visualize the destruction in Ukraine. Can you describe how you did this? Maybe, Maria, I'll ask you to start. Originally, we got a pitch from a now graduate student of Berkeley. Her name is Karina, who is originally from Kharkiv in Ukraine and has been living in the United States for a few years studying. And she had started to put together a list, a very specific list, actually, of specific sites in Ukraine that had been destroyed during the invasion since February. So she sent us like that massive data set of strikes that she had recorded and kind of like fact checked through different sources on social media, but also on like local kind of like news websites and everything. So we really started from here 
we're graphics journalists and data journalists. So when we were approaching this story, we were thinking about what visuals we could include. And so we were looking online for these potential 3D models and visuals of some of the important sites that had been damaged. And we found Sergey, who is an architect in Kyiv, and he had scanned different cultural sites that had been destroyed. And he created these pretty incredible 3D models that are very detailed. We contacted him and he was willing to help us and willing to share his work. And so that's kind of how we got started with some of the visuals in the piece. Is it the belief of the government that Russia is deliberately targeting Ukraine's cultural heritage? Everyone that we spoke to, many of the Ukrainian citizens that we spoke to, believe that these damage and destruction is not accidental, but it's very targeted. Rachel, what are people in these towns where cultural sites have been targeted, what are they doing to protect what's still there? What are they doing to try to collect what has been damaged but not destroyed to keep it from being damaged further? There's been quite a lot of grassroots efforts by ordinary Ukrainian citizens to protect monuments, putting sandbags around statues, to remove paintings from burning buildings in order to protect the art of folklore artists of Ukrainian origin. Ordinary citizens have really stepped up in physical ways to protect these buildings and monuments, but also because of Ukraine's huge IT sector, there are lots of digital archiving being done by Ukrainians in the country and abroad in order to, you know, store documents on servers that are outside of the country in case there's any damage to them. So many different citizens are taking things into their own hands in order to protect their culture and heritage. After the war is over and Ukraine begins to rebuild, they'll also want to rebuild some of these cultural sites. A lot of what has been lost cannot be replaced, precious artwork and other artifacts. What is the government doing to actually try to think about how they will preserve and then restore the cultural heritage of the country? The question that we've heard from lots of the architects that they're thinking about now is not how much it'll cost, but how they'll preserve certain memories of these destroyed sites, how they'll preserve the fact that these were destroyed in war, and how they'll take certain sites and think about remembrance for the lives lost or the cultural significant objects or buildings that were destroyed. It's hard to estimate how much it's actually going to cost to rebuild a certain church or a museum, but the conversations that we've heard are a lot about what will be rebuilt, what will be remembered, what will be restored, and what will just be kept in its destroyed state to serve as a memorial. Ukrainians now who are seeing all of this being destroyed will know what they've lost, but younger generations will never have the benefit of having seen this. How are young people looking at the future of Ukraine's culture when so much of its past has been destroyed? I think that's where a lot of the digital records will come in. We've seen, you know, students on social media posting about sites that they've seen in photos or in videos that have been damaged. And there's this huge effort to record the destruction that's happening in the sites and marking these sites on maps and knowing which churches have been damaged. From what we've seen, a lot of young people are very much involved in recording the actual on-the-ground damage that's going on in their cities. And that kind of contributes to a collective remembrance and a collective documentation that can then hopefully be used to not forget and to remember and to possibly reconstruct or memorialize. 
Rachel Doddle and Marie Patino, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. You can see Marie Patino and Rachel Doddle's immersive visual story with photos and the 3D models we've been talking about on Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to Big Take at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producer is Federica Romaniello. Our associate producer is Zenib Siddiqui. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Hey there, it's Sarah Holder, host of Big Take. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.